Well, there comes a moment in every kid's life where they realize that Rockabye Baby, which you've probably had sung to you on numerous occasions, is actually a really disturbing song. <laughs> Rockabye Baby on the treetop. When the wind blows, the cradle will rock? Like, wait, why, why'd you put a baby up in a tree all by itself? Um, when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby cradle and all. <laughs> oh, so a song sung about a baby plummeting to its death. Cool, 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 cool. All right, all right. But that's not the only surprisingly creepy children's song or nursery rhyme. Uh, if you look into the origin of some of the songs we were encouraged to sing as children, it turns out a lot of them are actually even more unnerving than you realize. Ring Around the Rosy. Hmm. It's a song about the Black Plague. <laughs> One of the signs of the disease was a supposed red rash or a rosy. And people would keep herbs or posies in their pockets to try to ward off the sickness. Ashes to ashes, <laughs> cremation, we all fall down. Jeez, it just, <laughs> just puts a nice little bow on it. Or take Little Red Riding Hood, for instance. Like, do we need to say more? <laughs> Think about how creepy that story is. It's about a wolf who murders a grandmother and then puts on her clothes while he lies in wait to eat a little girl. Like, why are we telling these stories to our children? Like, well, that's exactly the way it feels when we get to the story of Noah and the flood. If you had to list the three um, most popular Bible stories that everyone in America knows, the story of Noah and the flood would probably make the list, yeah? But the biggest irony about this story is that we have made this story into a cute bedtime story illustrated by puppet shows and happy giraffes and in comes the animals two by two, the hippopotamus and the kangaroo. Like <laughs> at a church we were at in North Carolina, they had, they had these cute animals uh, from the ark that were just painted floor to ceiling throughout the children's hallway in, in the basement. Uh, and it was like, isn't this beautiful? But the irony is, is that this is not really a kid-friendly story at all. It's an incredible story, but I, I think by the end of this message, uh, I hope to convince you that this story may not be the best one to soothe your toddler to sleep at night. It's a story about a global flood and genocide. A story that depicts God's wrath and decision to kill everyone and every living thing. I mean, it's just like dangling the four horsemen of the apocalypse over your baby's mobile <laughs> or painting a giant sickle on their wall. Like... Mom, why does it smell like death? Shush, baby. Like, don't think about it. Like, <laughs> Noah's Ark brings up a lot of questions for people. How could a good God do this? How? How could, how could he do this? Like, was it real or, or was it just a good story? Well, today we're going to look at the flood and the ark in three ways. We're going to look at the farm, the flood, and the favor. The farm, the flood, and the favor. So let's look at the farm. Uh, if you remember from last week, uh, the picture that Genesis is painting for us is about the state of the world is pretty bleak. Uh, Genesis 6-5 says that every intention of everyone's heart was only evil continually. Oh, is that it? <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty dark picture, and God decides in verse 7, I will blot out mankind. But God bestows favor on Noah, and as you heard last week, favor means grace. Noah was part of the only evil continually group. And yet this passage begins in verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. And so you ask, you know, what do we do with that? I thought everyone, only evil, all the time, 
What about Noah here? Now, some, some are very troubled by this apparent contradiction within just a couple of verses of each other, but it's simply, this is simply what grace does. It changes you. Noah was a part of that only evil group, but God showed him grace, and grace changes you. Grace made Noah a good dude. Um, as we say here, God loves you just the way that you are, but he loves you too much to leave you the way that you are. And so, so Noah became a righteous man and blameless, which literally means whole or complete, uh, a wholehearted commitment and wholeness of relationship. And so blameless means to abstain from sin, not to, not to be without sin. Um, that would be against everything the Bible teaches. Just like David, though clearly a rapist and a murderer, he can still claim, I have been blameless before him. You know, grace is wild, who it comes to and how it changes you. And so God uses Noah to build an ark, which is a giant boat. Verse 14 says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, no one knows what gopher wood is, but it's just, it sounds great, doesn't it? Like, what's that? That gopher wood? Yeah, probably, probably gopher wood. (laughs) Verse 14 goes on to say, make rooms or nests in the ark and with cover it inside, in and out with pitch, which pitch is like this waterproof type of glue substance in that day. Um, And then God makes very clear instructions on how to make this ark this behemoth. It's, it's 450 feet long. Um, it's the largest ship known to, to be constructed in the ancient world. It was giant. I mean, to be sure, Noah's Ark doesn't compare in size with the Queen Elizabeth II ship uh, or some other modern ocean liners made with steel. But for a wooden boat, it's monstrous. Like, it's bigger than the Nina and the Pinta and the Santa Maria. Like, researchers have shown that there's an equivalent of the volume of 500 semi-trailers of space. Now, skeptics of this would argue there's no way Noah could have done all of this by himself. And fair, the text never says that Noah built it alone, just that God commanded Noah to do it. He could have easily employed his sons or hired skilled craftsmen to help him. He had 120 years to do it. Now, why the need for all of that room? And you probably already know the answer to that question. God is going to bring the farm to Noah. Verse 19 says, And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Now, how did Noah do that? How did Noah know the difference between a female duck and a male duck? Like, do you know how to find that out? (laughs) Was Noah running around with a butterfly net trying to just catch them all? Got to catch them all. Got to catch them all, right? This story raises all sorts of questions. But no, Adam doesn't, uh, Noah doesn't need a butterfly net to go get them all, nor is he like Mario chasing after and diving after rabbits. God does a miracle and brings them to him. Just like when the animals were brought before Adam to name them, The animals were brought to Noah into the ark supernaturally, being guided to come. And yet more questions arise. If if every animal comes to one place on one boat, is that boat going to be big enough? But remember it says over and over, it kept saying, and according to their kind. So God's not bringing every dog, just the dog family, probably an English bulldog. He's not bringing (laughs) every horse, but all of the horse kind from which we could get zebras and donkeys, etc. right? But the burning question for everyone on the farm is, if any kids have asked this, like, were there 
dinosaurs on the ark. <laughs> it's funny. That's probably the most asked question. What do we do with dinosaurs? There are fossils and there are bones on earth, and so clearly they used to exist. Were, were they there? Were they on the ark? Well, unless they were wiped out before then, yes, they were. Because God says two of every living creature. If they're alive, then they're there. But, but how can they fit? I've seen Jurassic Park, and a T-Rex on a boat doesn't go well. <laughs> well, it doesn't mean that God brought a full-grown of each kind. He could have easily brought the teenager dinosaur. That's no bigger than a cow. And apparently, there was enough room for God to not only bring the animals, but to a storeroom full of food for all the animals. But just imagine you're, a, you're living in this time, <laughs> and you have some crazy dude who's saying, Y'all, for real, in 120 years, there's going to be this great flood. I know it's, we live in a desert, <laughs> but we're all going to die. But I'm building a boat. And you're like, a boat? Well, yeah, but it's like a really big one with animals. And the, and the animals are going to live with me. And so far, I've gotten a few yeses from my, my kids and their wives. So you want to you join? <laughs> me and my family and some random animals on a boat? You're like, uh-huh, cool, 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 cool. Like, what are you going to do about all the poop? Like... <laughs> Oh, well, that's Japheth's department. Like, <laughs> hard pass, Noah. But I mean, think about how humiliated Noah would have been during this time. This dude is crazy. There's no way this is going to happen. He's so delusional that it makes you feel bad for him. But then comes the flood. In chapter 7, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household. And then in verse 4, for in seven days I will send rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. So God told them 120 years ago, I will flood the earth, and at that point I will kill everyone and everything. Hell is coming. Repent. You see, as interesting as this discussion on the farm and animals are, this story isn't just about the ones God saves. It's about the punishment for sin. And the wages of sin are death. And God brings a worldwide death. I mean, think about that for a moment. When, when Noah got into the boat with his family and the rain started to come down, it had to have been an eerie silence. This is it. And as the thunder reverberates through their bones, and for 40 days and 40 nights, it rains and it rains and it rains. And verse 11 says that all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened. And so water is coming up from the grounds out of these deep caverns being emptied out and from above. And so just imagine you're there. Water starts to fill the streets. And then your front yard and then into your home. And so you say, we got to get out of here. And you move you, you and your family to higher ground. And so maybe you pack up your family. Maybe you're privileged enough to have a boat. And you paddle past some other people uh, that are on the, the roofs of their houses. And you come to the nearest hill. But then that, that hill is going under. And now you search for the nearest mountain. And then the water is still rising. And you're, you're going to the very top of the mountain. All the while, you see animals struggling for life going under. Now imagine you're Noah and his family in the boat and you just hear the cries and the screams and the pleas for people outside the boat. Please help! We're dying! Let us in! Like, do you think Noah had doubts at that point? I mean, do you think there was an argument am amongst the people in the boat and the family? Like, maybe we should help them. But verse 5 
and Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. It's a chilling scene. And then in verse 21, and all flesh died that moved on the earth. I mean, this is the reversal of creation. Genesis 7 is decreation. It's taking all that creation did and, and undoing it all. All flesh. How many people? Well, given how old people lived in that day, some 900 years, as we heard, and how many kids they actually had in comparison to how long, uh, how many kids we have. So as the long life, with the, as many kids, uh, they create lots of kids that live long. There would have been close to 4 billion people in the earth at that time. Billions purged and punished. Billions experiencing hell. Animals wiped out. Like, why? Because as he tells us back in chapter 6, it's poetic justice. Just as the people have corrupted and disfigured the earth with violence, so God will disfigure the earth and mankind. But maybe you're just thinking, like, couldn't he just give them some more time? Like, he gave them 120 years. The New Testament tells us that Noah was preaching righteousness in that day. And so besides building this boat, he was preaching to them too. And no one listened. And then seven days before the rain starts, God warns him and says, you have seven days and no one listened. And so Noah used those seven days to bring the animals into the ark to get ready. And all the while, people continue to reject the offer. The story of Noah and the flood is really a story about hell. God is warning human beings that there are consequences for our actions. And people go to hell every day and we don't even blink an eye. Like some of the people I love are going to hell. It's real. And you may say, I can't believe in a God that would send people to hell for eternity. But just as we talked about last week with the problem of evil, if God let justice go unchecked and let evils come at you left and right, and there's never justice, never a righting of wrongs, then you would curse him. He wouldn't be just. But So hell is real. People we love will die. God should have spared them, we think, like, and he did. He sent an enormous boat, and anyone who wanted to get on the boat could. And so we see the farm and the flood, and now we see the favor. God is incredibly gracious. He's incredibly gracious. He has the offer for salvation is on the table. The boat is open. Come on in. But human beings are incredibly self-destructive. We, we want to swim on our own rather than embrace God's provision. Like, don't we see the similarities between Noah's day and ours? Before it was a judgment by water, but on that day at the end of time, it will be a judgment by fire. Christians are sometimes ridiculed for believing in a coming destruction, but we're preaching Romans 10, 13. As Malcolm said before, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just call on the name. Confess Christ is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. <laughs> yes, it's a story about God's punishment and the reality of hell that is ever before us, but it's also a story about the God's rescue plan through a wooden ark. And the Hebrew word for ark is only used once more in the Bible, and it's actually the name for the basket that Moses' mom places him in as she sends him down the river to be spared from the wrath of Pharaoh. There is salvation in the ark. There is hope in the ark. And all you need to do is to get in the boat. Later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is, is talking about a, a second worldwide judgment that comes. And, and in Matthew 24, he says in verse 36, but concerning that day, 
and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Do you see what Jesus is telling us to take away from this real-life story that happened? Just as it was in the days of Noah, people be, will be unaware of the judgment until the flood comes and sweeps us away. And, and what are the people doing in that day? What is, Genesis describes it as only evil continually, but what does Jesus tell us what that looks like? It, it says he, they're eating and drinking and marrying. And you think, well, why is that so bad? Their lives have become a caricature of life. Like you need to eat to live, you need to drink to live, and you need marriage to have, to have kids to, to, to fill the earth and produce the next generation. But this was all that they were doing. Their lives were preoccupied with what they will eat. Will this hurt my diet? I don't know. How, how, how much food do I want to eat today? And then you start lusting after food. What, what drink will give me a good time? Like I just want a good time. Or their concern was, oh, who will I marry? They were obsessed with marriage and, and to who to marry and who is the one? Who is my soulmate? I mean, does this sound like today? We're distracted by the day-to-day -day concerns of life that we don't stop to even think about the giver of life. And what Jesus is telling us is we don't have to be engaged in these heinous sins to deserve the hell that is coming. All we have to do is be distracted. Just focus on the here and the now and ignore the flood of judgment that's coming. Ignore the offer for a ride in the boat. And so our focus is so narrow, like how can I be happy today? How can I improve my business, my, my salary? How can I survive these next two months? Like how do I survive this year? How do I survive next year? Like all the while the, the, while the waters are rising. But there was another ark. And not a boat, not a basket, but a cross that promises salvation and rescue from the coming hell that every human being is headed towards. And the doors of that ark are still open. And the only way that this ark is made possible is it requires the wrath of God, the flood, the fire, the weeping and the gnashing of teeth to come to its captain. Jesus experiences the flood so that you don't have to. That other ark in Noah's day was, was both justice in that it was God pouring out his wrath on humanity, but it was also grace to Noah and to future generations to step into sin, to do something about the violence that was in the day, to not let it continue. And so the ark both punishes and it purges. It punishes sin, but it, purnish, it purges the stains of sin from the world. But what makes this other ark better is that the punishment that should have come upon sinful human beings and purged us from the world in this new ark, it falls on Jesus and, and our sin, not us. And so it is purged and being purged, and, it, and it, the, the news gets better. The ark doesn't just save you from the wrath of God. It introduces you to the love of Christ. It's not enough to just say that God, God doesn't hate you. Like, no, it's more important than that. His love is deeply committed to you. I mean, we get a relationship with God. And we get a glimpse of that when God says to Noah in chapter 6, verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you shall come into the ark. 
And so God establishes or confirms his love that is committed to Noah. That term covenant means a contract. He's saying, I am bound to love you. I'm committed to love you no matter what. This is the best news in the world. The best news in the world that God, the creator of, the human, of, of everything, loves you deeply. I mean, I think Christians need to see it's okay to laugh and find things funny every once in a while. Cheer up. <laughs> There's a pastor named Steve Brown who says, cheer up. You're a lot worse than you think. <laughs> but God took the flood for you. Like, cheer up. You've just been spared from the wrath of God. Like, do we realize how great that news is? It's great because we have, we have full access to our maker, creator, and we can talk with him anytime we want. But just like the original ark, you get stuck with a bunch of stinky animals and a crazy family. And that's good news. This new family, the church, is here to remind you that you're not alone. We're in it together. And the thing that unites every single one of us is that we're in this together. Like, have you seen those, those stickers, those murals all over the city that, you know, uh, we're in this together? Uh, COVID hit, and, and it bound the city together in a unique way. And so we're all fighting this. And so whatever differences we have, like, I don't want you to catch this disease. Likewise, we're on this ark together. And the truth should, that truth should drive God's church. Like, do we live like we're on this ark together? That we all need this ark like Christians, do we see others in danger that they're in? That we are all equally in need of the blood of Jesus to spare us from the wrath of God to, in hell. And the good news is the door of, of that ark hasn't closed yet. There's still time. There's still time to repent and believe. Like, what does it mean to repent? The Westminster Confession says repentance is, is a sinner out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger but also the filthiness and odiousness of his sins. Like, do I, do I see my sin as odious? Do I think my sins earn me a spot in hell? Or do I downplay the seriousness of my sin? Like, that's my problem. I presume upon the Lord's grace too much. But true repentance is saying, I hate my sin, and I don't want to be that person anymore. Westminster goes on to say, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sin as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all of the ways of his commandments. And so we then turn from our sin and we reach out for help. There is still time, y'all. Like, I don't know when he's going to come back, but it will be swift and it will be sudden. Now, some of you are like, yeah, sure. He's waited long. Maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's not real. Well, now you sound like the people in Noah's day. And then in a flash, it'll be here. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. He is patient because he doesn't want you to perish. There is a coming flood. Hell is real. The wrath is scary, but God's grace is good. Amen? It's too good. I mean, do you believe it? Not just do you say, sure, that sounds acceptable, but do you bank on it? Like, are you all in on Christ's death and resurrection? 
Have you said that my only hope in life, in death, is Jesus Christ? Don't wait. The time is coming. I pray you get on the boat. Reach out for help. Let's pray.